Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, MindShift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to MindShift, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Kara Newhouse. And I'm Nima Gobier. Today we're talking about math. Because it involves numbers and formulas, we often think of math as straightforward and objective. But learning math is actually packed with emotions. I met a high school teacher who starts the year with an unusual assignment. She has her students write a letter to math, describing their feelings about the subject. Here's that teacher, Sarah Strong. A Dear Math Letter is a letter that students write to math as if math were personified sitting across the table from them. And it really helps inform teachers better understand the students' stories and experiences that they're coming to class with so that teachers can better design math experiences for students to thrive and flourish in math class. We'll hear more from Sarah later in the episode. First, here's part of a Dear Math letter from one of her former students, Taylor Paris. Dear Math, oh, do I have some things to say to you. You followed me throughout every school year, caused me the worst headaches, and given me numerous counts of anxiety just thinking about you. The memories of my 7th grade math teacher telling me maybe you're just not a math person still ringing in my head, and the constant B's and C's are still imprinted in my mind. You've been a never-ending challenge and struggle, and it's always been hard to understand you. No matter how many times my friends and teachers explain you, I never grasp you completely. The anxiety and frustration that Taylor described in her letter are familiar feelings for many young people. And by the time students get to high school, it can feel like if they don't understand math now, they never will. But math doesn't have to be this way. When we get back from the break, we'll hear more about Dear Math Letters and how they help students like Taylor strengthen their mathematical identities. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate. 
www.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Taylor Paris graduated from high school a few years ago, but she still remembers the first week of 10th grade math with her teacher, Sarah Strong. That's when students wrote letters to math, as if it were a person. And I remember being so excited because basically you're writing in math, and that's never the case. Interdisciplinary learning allows students to think about a subject from new perspectives. For Taylor, writing the Dear Math Letter gave her a chance to reflect on how her early school years shaped her relationship to math. I remember my first, like, scariness of math was long division because it was like so abstract to me and everyone around me understood it and was like yeah well that's just the way it is and that's totally fine. Writing about those memories was cathartic. It also helped Taylor feel connected to her teacher. I have never had a math teacher talk about emotions behind math ever. Like truly ever. She recognized my experience as a part of this really big experience that so many other people have, and that was really validating. Her teacher, Sarah Strong, also made it clear that it was okay for those feelings to surface throughout the year, which made it possible for Taylor to focus on actually learning math. She did a great job at making me feel like I could take a really complex problem and break it down to the bare bones of it, Which is such a simple concept, but it didn't even cross my mind that I could do that in math. And that taking my time in math meant that I was being a mathematician. And that's what mathematicians did, was take their time and work on problems slowly to really understand every aspect. When I met Taylor, she had just been promoted from a stylist to a sales manager at a bridal shop in San Diego. That's a fashion job that involves a lot of math. So stylists are responsible for, obviously, you know, the customer service side of things. But on the sales side, there is a certain goal that you need to meet um, or would ideally meet day to day and kind of week to day, month to day. And so when you think about it, sales is like one big math problem every day because there's a question, there's a answer that you have to get to, and then there's variables that go into you know, the answer to your problem, essentially. Taylor is 20. Not that long ago, doing a math-related job would have been unimaginable to her. If you told sophomore year Taylor that I would be doing something that was directly correlated with math and numbers all the time, um, I would be terrified and probably laugh. Taylor had Sarah Strong as a math teacher from 10th grade through 12th grade. She said that those years totally changed her view of math. And so while I may have been scared to take a sales manager position at, you know, in my sophomore year, it makes a ton of sense for me now because what I do is help people find their wedding dress. And who would have thought that math was in finding a wedding dress? Taylor now sees herself as a doer of math. This is what's called mathematical identity. We did an episode featuring Chris Emden, who talked about students' STEM identities. Mathematical identity is one form of a STEM identity. 
Mathematical identity is a way that students see themselves as a mathematician and therefore it connects to the ways that they enter into mathematical spaces and connect with other mathematicians around them. That's teacher Sarah Strong again. She created the Dear Math activity during a bigger project where students were exploring their mathematical identities. They were using different types of math as metaphors for their experiences. And Sarah wanted to add a writing component to that project. And one of my colleagues shared with me the idea of writing letters to a thing like books or basketball and how she'd heard of that practice. And she thought I could do Dear Math letters. And I thought that was an amazing idea. So I ran with it. The letters were powerful. And Sarah realized that having students write them at the beginning of the year could help her teach each class better. Here's how she does it now. She introduces the assignment during the first week of school. She reads her own Dear Math letter as a model because most students aren't used to writing in math class. Hearing her letter also lets them know that even though she teaches math, it hasn't always been easy for her. After reading her letter, Sarah gives her students prompts for writing their own. Questions like, what is one of your greatest mathematical strengths? How do you plan to engage with math in the future? What would you like more of in math classrooms? They spend 15 to 30 minutes writing in class. Anyone who wants to write more can finish at home. Then, Sarah reads the letters on her own. She says this is the most important step. Because it's the beginning of an ongoing story between you and the students and their math experience for that semester or year. And it's really important to start by listening to them well. She first looks for broad patterns across the class. If I've got a disproportionate amount of students that hate math, don't think they're mathematicians, then I have to be really intentional about my class design, where I am regularly noticing and calling out their mathematical strengths and giving them opportunities to see themselves as mathematicians and see each other as mathematicians. Or do I have a lot of students who who feel like I am a really strong mathematician ever since I was young, I, I get all the right answers, I'm really fast, then I can note that that's a trend in the class and be thinking how I can continue to push those students while also broadening their understanding of how they are mathematical and how important it is to also listen to other students' ways of being mathematical. She also reads the letters for individual details about things students love and things that trip them up. She might make a few notes and check in with students like, gosh, I remember you said that you had a really hard time with the idea of percents and like whenever percents come up, you panic. Well, tomorrow we're going to need some percents in our work with exponential functions. And so I wanted to make sure that you knew that I believe that you got this. If you want to do a little practice beforehand, we can do that Um, because I want you to feel confident. I don't want some story from sixth grade impacting your confidence and what we're working on right now. Sarah said that getting to know students was always important to her, even before she created the Dear Math assignment. I would often try to connect with them in a variety of ways, and I would hear their comments here and there that were both positive and negative. And I always tried to be a really good listener and understand my students' feelings. But she wasn't always getting a full picture. Sometimes I think I was being a little delusional before I got to hear their whole stories because I would think, oh, they had really negative experiences. They don't like math, but now that they're in my class, everything's going to be fine. 
the letters helped her take off her rose-colored glasses. It wasn't until I started having them write Dear Math Letters that I got to hear more complete stories and gain a bigger picture for their previous experience and how those experiences were informing the ways they were showing up to my class. That knowledge enables her to help students grow as math learners throughout the year. My biggest hope is that they start to see themselves as mathematicians in new ways and that they start to see their peers as mathematically brilliant in new ways. Nima, it would be great if Dear Math Letters helped all students see themselves as capable of doing math, the way it did for Taylor Paris. It would, but of course not every student's math story is linear. No, some math stories go up and down over time, like a periodic function. Hey, nice math analogy! I got that one from Sarah Strong. She described her own math story that way. It also applies to another of her former students, Isabella Avila. Here's the start of a Dear Math letter Isabella wrote in 10th grade. Dear Math, I really like you, but you don't come naturally to me. I have to work extra hard to understand and fully conceptualize what you have to offer. In previous math classes, Isabella felt pressure to always be fast and have the right answer. But she told me that expectation wasn't there in Sarah Strong's class. It was never even like a question of like, did you get it right or wrong? It was just seemed like we were always just all learning together as a class. That sense of togetherness mattered. And like, I think that really helped me like, number one, like think highly of myself as like a problem solver and also be confident in my ideas. Isabella had Sarah Strong as a teacher twice, and she wrote a Dear Math letter both times. You can hear her increased confidence in the letter she wrote as a senior. The most mathematical growth I feel I've ever experienced was during my junior year. I felt confident in my algebra skills for the first time ever. My mindset also shifted drastically. I developed a sense of patience and open-mindedness for the first time ever. I know this will help me a lot in college and beyond, and I look forward to using it in the future. Sincerely, Isabella Avila. When Isabella actually got to college, the transition was rocky. She's a pre-med major at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Our, like, math department is known for being, like, notoriously hard. All around her, Isabella saw classmates who had come from elite high schools and seemed to understand calculus more easily than she did. I really struggled a lot with, like, comparing myself, especially in math. And I just found that to be super, super counterproductive for both my learning and, like, my self-esteem. Sometimes she would break down crying while doing homework, which could take eight hours to complete. In class, she didn't participate as much as she had hoped to. I just really didn't want to sound like I didn't know what I was talking about or like, not that I don't belong there, but I don't know. It was just everyone around me was so smart. And I know like tests don't define you, but everyone around me, like even if they were starting in Calc 1, they like got fives on like the AP Calc exams and did exceptionally well. Back in high school, Isabella had written in one of her letters that she'd had a lot of highs and lows with math. Freshman year of college was definitely another low. When I talked to her during her sophomore year at Johns Hopkins, being a pre-med major was still very stressful. Something that helped, though, was making friends who didn't talk about grades. We don't talk about 
like what score we got we don't talk about how we're doing in the class we don't talk about honestly we don't talk that much about like our actual like school and she said the persistence that she developed in high school did help her get through calculus especially in math here in college I feel like how you think about yourself and like how fast you are to like get back up and keep trying is really truly so much more important than if you can actually do the math. Kara, the way Isabella compared herself to her calculus classmates isn't unique to being at a university full of high achievers. That's right. Sarah Strong said those comparisons have been pervasive in students' Dear Math letters. And according to experts, this kind of thinking starts early. Researchers say even kindergartners start to notice their spot in the pecking order of math ability. It often starts with those one-minute math quizzes that so many of us remember. Students might hear their classmates furiously scribbling answers and slamming their pencils down when they finish. They equate that with being good at math. And there are lots of other ways in school that students are ranked and sorted. In younger grades, teachers often group students by ability when they're practicing math. In upper grades, students may get tracked into regular and advanced classes. Some teachers will even publicly display kids' progress in certain math skills. This can look like a bulletin board that uses paper ice cream scoops to represent how many multiplication facts each student knows. One researcher I talked to had a lot of ideas about how to disrupt hierarchies in math education. This is Rachel Lambert from University of California, Santa Barbara. I think if there's one one thing I'd like to communicate, it's that teachers and parents can affect the way kids think about these things. Rachel shared five tips that teachers can use to help kids stop comparing themselves to others in math. The first tip is to change the narrative about who can do math. Students would tell me how much it mattered to them to hear their teacher say, there is no difference in who can be good at math. Like very clear messages around race and gender and the the clear message that there is no one group of people that is better than math than other people. Those students told me that was helpful to them. Changing the narrative isn't just about what we say to kids. It's also about how teachers talk to each other and how they group students in class. We might think as teachers, and I was a teacher for over 10 years, that kids don't know that we might be calling them low kids or high kids when we're having lunch with other teachers. But they know, they always know, and they know how they're being grouped and classified and seen. If we decide that kids are going to do well in mathematics, we do a lot of things in our teaching to set them up for success day after day. If we think kids will fail when we hand them a mathematical task, we're doing subtle things to set them up for failure every single time we do that. So if we put them in groups that never change, we're teaching them who they are and we're also affecting who they become because we're only allowing them opportunities to do things, you know, quote unquote, at their level. Rachel's second tip for teachers is to stop focusing on speed. Think of it not as a matter of going slow. Think of it as investing in certain things. So you can't hit everything on your pacing calendar. You can't do every standard every year with your students. 
You have to figure out what is worth investment and what is worth extra time and then spend more time with those topics so that students feel that they have enough time learning those things. Her third tip is to normalize mistakes. It can help students learn from each other's thinking when you have them share their mistakes. Rachel told me about a teacher who did this. She would even put a little heart next to a mistake and she'd be, this is my favorite mistake of the day. And she drew a little heart next to it and the kids would go, oh, <laughs> it was adorable. Tip number four is to give students problems that can be approached from multiple angles. I see that some kids really love to engage in the visual aspect of a problem. Other students like to make, say, an organized list. And that doesn't mean there's no such thing as learning styles. It doesn't mean that that's the way they're going to approach every problem. But it does mean that a problem that draws on multiple ways of engaging can be more rich mathematically and also disrupt ideas of who's the best at math and who isn't. Rachel Lambert's fifth and final tip is to make supports available to everyone. That is one of the simplest interventions you can do in math to make it more equitable. And it doesn't send any negative messages to kids because they are choosing if they want to use a calculator. They are choosing if they want to hear the directions a second time. They are choosing if they use manipulatives. Making these resources available to everyone takes the teacher's assumptions out of the equation. And it helps kids develop the skills to recognize what they need to succeed. Kara, there are some people who say math teachers should just focus on content. That activities like writing letters to math are more about self-esteem than learning. These goals don't have to be separate. Direct instruction and problem-solving practice are essential parts of math education. But like we said at the beginning, doing math involves emotions. Although we've heard a lot about the frustrating parts of math, it can also evoke positive emotions. Kids who are absorbed in math problem solving often express wonder and excitement. Listening to young people's stories and honoring all of these emotions allows students to be more human in math class. And that doesn't just make them believe in their math abilities. It empowers them to learn math and to do math. This episode would not have been possible without Sarah Strong. To learn more about Dear Math Letters, you can read the book she wrote with her former student, Gigi Butterfield. The book is called Dear Math, Why Kids Hate Math and What Teachers Can Do About It. Thanks also to Taylor Paris, Isabella Avila, Rachel Lambert, and Amy Parks. The MindShift team includes Nima Gobier, Ki Sung, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo, and me, Kara Newhouse. Our editor is Chris Hambrick. Chris Hoff engineered this episode. Additional support from Jen Chien, Katie Sprenger, Cesar Saldana, and Holly Kernan. MindShift is supported in part by the generosity of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and members of KQED. If you love MindShift and enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. We really appreciate it. You can also read more or subscribe to our newsletter at kqed.org mindshift. Thank you for listening to Season 8 of the MindShift Podcast. That's it for these deep dive episodes. We're taking a little break, but we'll be back soon with new episodes featuring conversations about big ideas in education. Be sure to follow the show or subscribe so you don't miss a thing.
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.